0: Heavenly Father, you are the sovereign God of the universe. You control every single thing. You know the hairs on our head, and not one of them drops to the ground without you willing it. So we entrust ourselves to you now, Heavenly Father. We pray that you, the God of the universe, would care for us during this time that seemed so turbulent. God, I think of protests going on around our nation and around the world, I think of riots going on in our streets. I think of racial tensions. I think of political divisions. And God, we confess we just don't have the wherewithal or the knowledge or the wisdom to handle these things on our own. So we entrust ourselves over to your sovereign care. And God, we pray now that as we open your scriptures, you would give us light in a dark world, that you would give us insight into your truths, your scriptures, and most importantly, your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, and our friend. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. All right, so the book of Romans, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 17 this morning and then dive into our teaching. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's the word of God. So I've already mentioned this morning we're kind of a divided country. You probably noticed this, it's election season, so those divisions kind of bubble up to the surface even more. And, you know, if you turn on any sort of entertainment, any sort of media, you realize we're divided on so many things. We're divided politically, right? We're separated into different political parties, Democrats and Republicans, different political ideologies even, right? Conservative or liberal. We're divided on our media sources. Some of us are MSNBC people. Some of us are CNN people, some of us are Fox News people. Some of us are NPR people. And we're even divided about our opinions on masks, right? Whether or not they really do what they're supposedly supposed to do. So we're a divided nation, a divided people. We feel that, don't we? We're just divided almost about every single thing. Ben Sass is an author, he uh, is also a junior senator from this great state of Nebraska, Go Big Red. He recently wrote a book. It was entitled, Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. And in that book, he said, We live in a nation where one half of the nation demonizes the other half, and in response, the other half returns the favor in kind. He says that when that happens, the tendrils of resentment reach out and strangle whatever charitable impulses remain in us. We have these divisions, and it forces us to dig our heels in, to defend our side, right, as opposed to the other side. And because of this division, oftentimes, even when we see things with our own eyes or hear things from an audio clip, we, we still are kind of in doubt as to, to what really happened, what's really true, and who should we really believe. Does anybody else feel this? Yes? <laughs> Amen? And it's hard to know, right? What do we believe? What's true? What's true? And one observer, his name's Michael Lawrence, he pointed this out, he said, oftentimes when we do that, what, what happens because we don't know what's true? What we default to is we fall back on authority. We fall back on trusted sources, people or things that we just give authority to, people that we trust. We don't do the research ourselves, instead we trust these authorities. And this can be seen perfectly in Nobody knew what epidemiology was three or four months ago, right? Let alone how to spell it. But now, you know, Anthony Fauci is one of the most known people in the United States. This authority on epidemiology is now one of the most known people. So we trust in these people, and we generally say, hey, they're gonna guide what we want to believe and what we know to be true. And just, by the way, just to prove how divided we are, Many of you, uh, and this is totally fine, many of you, you even hear the name Anthony Fauci, and you're like, I don't know if he's really trusted, right? Just further showing how divided we are. Okay, so science is one thing, but what about religion? Who can we trust in the realm of religion? After all, many people claim to speak for God, right? But the question is, how do we know that their message is true? Paul begins his letter to the Romans by trying to establish trust. That's what he wants to do. He wants to establish trust. He wants to lay the groundwork of trust. Because Paul doesn't know this Roman church, as we just read, right? Paul had heard of the faith of this church, but he would never actually visited this church. He doesn't know all the people in this church. And he wants to make sure that this church knows what they believe And that what they trust in and what their faith rests in is true. He wants them to have that rock solid assurance that what they believe about God is true. And if you've read Paul's New Testament letters, they usually fall into one of two categories, right? So there's like the corrective Paul, where he's trying to correct false beliefs, he's trying to correct false views, he's trying to correct false practices. But then there's also the protective side of Paul, and that's what Romans is, the protective side. He wants to give them right teaching, right doctrine, so that they would be protected against false teachers who want to come in and promote false teaching. So this is protective Paul wanting this church in in Rome to know what they believe and why they believe it. And that's why most people, when they think of the book of Romans, they think of doctrine or theology, right, right? teaching, heavy on doctrine. And that's right, because Romans lays out, really, if you want to summarize what Romans is, it lays out the basics of what it is followers of Jesus Christ believe. It's that simple. One author said that Romans is basic Christianity. It lays out the doctrines of what Christians believe, so that everybody can know it. So it lays out the doctrines of sin, doctrines of judgment, doctrines of salvation. and use these big terms like justification and sanctifica- sanctification and adoption and glorification. And another way you could put this is Romans is kind of like this basic Christian grammar. Remember a grammar book when you were younger? That's what Romans is. It's a basic Christian gram- grammar, a vocabulary of followers of Jesus. And just to dispel a couple of ideas here. Okay, some people think of doctrine, or they think of theology, and immediately a few things come to mind, right? The first thing that comes to mind is, oh, well, that's really just, that's academic, that's ivory tower, that's for people with advanced degrees, that's not for just normal people like you and me, right? That's, that's a common notion, and in one sense, there's some truth to that, in that, yes, doctrine is academic, because it's going to force us to use our minds, Because Jesus himself, as we read earlier, right, wants us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. So yes, we are going to engage our mind as Paul works us through his letter to the Romans. But in another sense, it's not academic in that it's not important for regular people. It's for everyone. Just think of Paul's audience. Right, Paul's writing to a first-century audience who has an education that's far less than ours. So, Paul wrote this for regular people, that these things aren't meant to be understood by just a few, but all of us, that we would rejoice in these truths, because our mind is a lot like a cup, okay? And we can either fill that cup with godly thoughts, biblical thoughts, true thoughts, and it's not as if we have a full cup of those things or our cup's empty. No, if, if we don't fill our cups, our minds, with godly thoughts, something else is going to fill it. It's not going to remain empty. So our, our thoughts are going to be shaped by something other than the Bible, something other than God. And Paul wanted this church, these ordinary followers, to have minds filled with godly thoughts. It's the, the, the same is true with us. And another notion is, you know, there's kind of this disconnect. We know we're supposed to have a relationship with God, a relationship with Jesus. And we sometimes say, well, there's theology over here, knowledge about God, and then there's relationship with God over here, right? And we kind of see these things as separated from one another. But just think about this, right? My wife and I, we've we've almost been married eight years. We're coming up on our eight-year anniversary in August. And if you were to come to me and ask me, hey, what, what's Hannah's birthday? Or what's Hannah's favorite color? Or what are Hannah's likes and dislikes? And my answer sounded more like a bad rerun of the newlywed game. Instead of true facts about Hannah, you would question whether or not we really had a relationship, wouldn't you? You'd start to wonder, do you really have a relationship with this person? Do you really know this person that you say to be married to and have a relationship with? See, here's the thing. Doctrine and relationship are not divorced from one another. They're actually intimately connected to one another. I like the way Michael Horton put this. Michael Horton is a theologian. He said, a personal relationship with a God about whom you know nothing is not a personal relationship. So we want to have true thoughts about God in order to enhance our relationship. And here's the reality. Here's the reality everyone has a theology. Everyone has a set of doctrines, a set of basic beliefs that they believe in about God. And to prove this, just think with me for a moment. When I say the name Jesus, what comes to mind? If you were to try and describe Jesus back to me, automatically you are doing theology. You were trying to think, okay, who is Jesus? What does the Bible say about Jesus? How do I describe Jesus? How do I explain Jesus? Everyone has a theology. So the question isn't, do you have a theology or don't you? It is, is your theology biblical or is it formed and shaped by something else? Are those beliefs true and are they trustworthy? So before Paul gets into kind of the meat of his letter, he wants to prove that what he's about to give to the Romans is true, and it's trustworthy. So he tries to lay the groundwork of trust. In verse 1, he wants to let them know who he is. He wants them to know who he is, Paul, and why he can be trusted with this message that he's about to bring. Then in verses 2 through 6, Paul brings the message, the gospel, And he says, this is the message that's from God, and for that reason, you can trust it. It's a trustworthy message. And then verses 8 through 17, Paul outlines his intentions, showing us why we need to trust this message. So the first point, Paul lets us into who he is. Who is Paul? He wants this church in Rome to understand who it is that's writing to him. And it's important because what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to establish authority, right? And authority kind of has two levels. You can think of it this way, right? On the one level, authority is about having a credible message. So when you're going through the grocery store and you're at the checkout line and you see two newspapers, one is the National Enquirer and the other is the Wall Street Journal, which one is more credible? The National Enquirer? No. The Wall Street Journal. We know that it's a credible source, don't we? Because the people at the Wall Street Journal have a history of credibility. They have a history of, you know, a certain standard of journalism and a series, a series of editing and fact-checking. They have credibility behind what they say. And so for that reason, they're more, in, more credible than the National Enquirer. But there's a second level to authority, right? When somebody has authority, they not only have credibility, they have power behind what they say. They have power to affect something in whatever it is that they're saying. So when I'm cooking dinner at home, and the spaghetti is just about ready, and I tell my three-year-old daughter, hey, Lainey, will you go upstairs and tell Eli that it's time for dinner? And so she runs upstairs, and I'm finishing dinner, and four minutes, five minutes, six minutes have passed and I've set the dinner table and we're just waiting, where's Eli? Well, Laney has no authority over Eli. So she said, Eli, it's time for dinner. And he goes about playing with his toys. Now if I tell Laney, mom says it's time for dinner and go tell Eli that. And she goes up and says, mom says it's time for dinner. Eli's down in two seconds. Right? It's because my wife has an authority, an inherent authority over Eli, and she has power in the words that she says. Paul, in verse 1, outlines his authority. He says, I am Paul, is how a traditional letter would have opened up. It's his greeting. Paul, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So let's take those in order really quick. First, Paul is a servant of Christ Jesus. That word servant is the Greek word doulos. It means slave. Now, a slave doesn't have any authority of his own. A slave is under obligation to do what his master says, when his master says it, how his master says it. So Paul is saying, here's who I represent. Here's my source of authority. It is Jesus. Jesus is my Lord He is my king. I am his slave. I am his servant. So if you want to know where my message comes from, it's not on me. It comes from a credible source, Jesus. But even more than that, Paul says he's called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And to be an apostle meant not only that you had a credibility, but that you had a power. And we see this actually when Jesus is calling his first apostles to himself. We see this in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is calling what he calls at that time his disciples to come to him. And then we read that Jesus, when he called these disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then there's a name change. They're no longer disciples. They're called apostles Sent out ones with the authority of Jesus. And we're told, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The very same message that Jesus began his gospel ministry with. So these are people who have the authority to teach with the power of Jesus. They have that authority. Later on, in the Bible, by the way, we see that these same apostles, in order to be an apostle, you had to witness the resurrected Jesus as well. So, when Paul enters into his letter with the Romans and he says he's called to be an apostle, what he's saying is, I am a witness to the resurrection of Jesus, I've been sent out by Jesus with the same powerful teaching authority as it, of Jesus, so that what I'm writing you are not just my words, not just the words of Paul, not just something I made up, it's not my interpretation, I actually write to you with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. Paul said later on in another letter that he wrote to a church in Ephesus, he said that the church is built on the authority of the apostles and the prophets. The prophets being the Old Testament, right, pointing forward to Jesus. Now the apostles have that same authority as the prophets of the Old Testament, that they don't look forward and talk about forward to Jesus. Instead, they look back to Jesus, and they explain who Jesus is with the same authority as the prophets of the Old Testament, This Roman church needed to hear these words for a reason. They needed to be on guard against false teaching, right? This is protective Paul. But we, on the other hand, need to hear these words for another reason, because if we're honest, right, we bristle against this idea that anyone has authority over us, or that we should submit to a teaching from somebody else that's not us. I like the way Mark Hemingway put it. Mark Hemingway is a journalist. He's an op-ed writer. He writes for a number of periodicals. He recently wrote a book, or sorry, recently wrote an article entitled, Shutdowns, Protests, and Riots. For better or worse, Americans will always question authority. That title captured my attention. And he said, as evidence kind of of our anti-authority bent as Americans, he says, all you have to do is look at some of the most trivial things in our culture. And he mentions NASCAR. Now, My dad's a big fan of NASCAR. If you love NASCAR, I'm sorry for calling it trivial. But anyway, he says, just look at NASCAR. He writes, in America, we build machines that race each other in excess of 200 miles per hour in close quarters. And this sometimes results in cars hitting each other and sending vehicles airborne, flying end over end on fire. It also bears mentioning that NASCAR's multi-billion dollar racing league evolved out of a group of bootleggers in the rural South who tricked out their cars in order to outrun police officers and federal authorities. And it makes sense, he continues, after all, hijinks and questioning authority are literally America's reasons for being. That's so true. And it's not just NASCAR, though. It's not just the trivial things. Let's, Let's look at the highest court of the land, the Supreme Court, This came from a recent decision at the Supreme Court where one of the chief justices uh, penning uh, the majority opinion said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. So see, whether you look at NASCAR or whether you look at the Supreme Court, they're saying the same thing, right? At the core of what it means to be an American, is the right to determine what we believe is true, what we believe is false, what we believe is right, what we believe is wrong, what we believe is good, what we believe is bad. In other words, we want to be free to determine what we deem true, what we deem best for our own lives. And therefore, we are the highest authority, and all other authorities are pretty suspect, right? So, when it comes to things about God or Jesus, we say things like, Well, that's your truth, but that's not my truth. Or, That might be true for you, but it's not true for me. And can I just be blunt, really quick? That might sound like a good way to approach life. It sounds like a very tolerant and inclusive way to approach life. But just to be blunt, nobody actually lives this way, right? When, when you're driving your car and you come to a stop sign and you look around and there's nobody, nobody near you, but you see a car coming from this side but you think that they're going to stop, it's a four-way stop, and you continue through the intersection and they just blow through the stop sign and hit you and you get out and you say, hey, what's the deal, didn't you see the stop sign? And if they got out and said, well, that stop sign's true for you, it's not true for me, what would you say? You'd say, give me your insurance. You're straight up out of your mind. Paul says the message he brings, it's not simply the message of Paul and interpretation that Paul made up. True for him, but not true for us. No, it's the message of Paul, who's been called to be an apostle. Meaning, everything he writes has the stamp of divine authority to it. it, has the authority of Jesus himself. We want to be people who submit to Jesus. We want to be people who follow his message, believe his truths. So, the point is this we can trust this me- message. We can trust this message, and this is going to require a great deal of humility, because I guarantee next week we're going to be talking about very particular things about sin. We're going to mention things like homosexuality, which comes up in Paul's letter to the Romans. Later on in Romans, Paul talks about this concept of predestination. These are ideas that we automatically kind of bristle against, whether or not it's because of our culture, because of what we believe to be true about God by default. But nonetheless, can I encourage you as we move through Romans to have a deep-seated humility, a posture of receiving and being challenged by what not just Paul has to say, but Paul who's called to be an apostle, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. After all, can I ask you, who's more likely to be right when it comes to Jesus and God Is it Paul who lived during the time of Jesus, who lived in the same region of Jesus, who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, or us, 21 centuries removed? So can I encourage us, deep humility as we encounter this message, because Paul's saying, this is trustworthy. My message is trustworthy, I am trustworthy. But Paul also shows, he brings Not only his trustworthy person, but his trustworthy message. Because the message is not about himself. Paul makes clear, this message is about God. He says that he's Paul, the servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And that's all that Romans is going to be about, is the gospel of God. The gospel meaning good news. Good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what gospel means. It literally means good news news. It's an announcement. It's a declaration about something God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ, not something that we do. It's an announcement. So Paul outlines this gospel in the opening here, his message, and he says where the gospel is from. He says it's from God, but then in verse 2, he says this gospel was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So Paul didn't make this good news up. He says it's promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Paul's message is not some newfangled thing. It's something that had already been laid down and promised before. And actually, the best way to understand this comes from a children's storybook. Every night, my my kids and I, we read this book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And on the very first pages, when you open it up, it says, God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere. And God also put it into words too and wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and what you shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it, but the Bible isn't mainly about you or what you should be doing. It's about God and what He has done. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules, but it's most of all a story, a story about a Savior, a story about God's Son. Every story in the Bible whispers His name. From Genesis to Revelation, it's one unfolding story about Jesus. So, if you want to know what the Bible is about, it's not rules. It's not heroes to emulate. It's a story about God's son descended from David. I like the way Alistair Begg put it. Alistair Begg's a pastor. He wrote, In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In the book of Acts, Jesus is preached. In the epistles, like we're reading now, the epistle of Romans, the letter of the Romans, Jesus is explained, and in Revelation, Jesus is expected. So from Genesis to Revelation, it's an unfolding story about Jesus. And what Paul had in mind here, right, was verses like in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned, we're told God came and he promised Adam and Eve, he said, one day a Savior will come who will crush the serpent's head, meaning death and evil and sin will be defeated. He had in mind the story of Abraham, Abraham who was promised that one of his descendants, somebody from his line, would come and he would reverse the curse of the world, that he would bring blessings to the nations, that God's curse on sin would finally be defeated and people would be forgiven. He had in mind the story of David who promised that who was promised by God that one of his descendants would be a great king, not just over Israel, but over the entire world. So Paul brings this announcement laid out in Scripture, this gospel message. But how can you trust this message? Have you ever thought about that? Okay. So it was promised beforehand. You can look in the Bible, but but, but why trust that? Well, I love what Paul says here. He says Jesus didn't just say he was God's son in the flesh. He proved it. He proved it. In verse 4, we see that Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. See, other religions, right? Here's how other religions work. They say, I went into a cave somewhere back here, and God came to me, and he's got a message, and now I'm bringing it to you, and you ought to believe it because I heard from God. Well, that's a head-scratcher, isn't it? Because did anybody else hear you? Well, no. But, but trust me. See, but Jesus is, is different. He actually proves that what he said about himself is true. He actually is walk, not just all talk, in Texas, right, They have a word for kind of like people who talk a big game but don't have anything to back it up. They say, big hat, no cattle. Jesus has the cattle to back it up. He's been resurrected from the dead. Jesus proves that what he said about himself is true, that he has defeated evil, he's forgiven sin, and he now rules over heaven and earth, and that these apostles actually witnessed his resurrection from the dead, so much so that they were willing to die for it. Now, one person said famously that many people will die for what they believe to be true, but nobody will die for what they willingly know is false. Isn't that true? After all, if I knew, and I was trying to fabricate the idea that Jesus rose from the dead, and somebody came to me and said, say that he didn't, otherwise you will die, I would back up my story pretty quickly. But the reality is, all of Jesus' followers, except for the Apostle John, all went to death proclaiming the same message that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. You guys might be familiar with Charles Colson. Charles Colson, remember, he was... Uh, close advisor to Nixon. He was involved in the Watergate scandal where Republican operatives broke into the Watergate hotel and offices in order to try and steal Democratic strategies for an upcoming election. And when these men were caught breaking into the Watergate building, there was this huge cover-up to try and cover up the fact that they were in in cahoots with uh, Richard Nixon. And Charles Colson was one of these guys who was trying to cover up this scandal. And Charles Colson later in prison became a follower of Jesus, and he put it this way. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How, you ask? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. Over 500 other witnesses did the same. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. That's why Matthew Henry, he's a commentator on this passage, he says, those who will not be convinced of the resurrection will not be convinced by anything. It is one of the most historically verified ancient historical facts of the known world. So Paul's objective is just that, to convince us this is true. It's a true message. We need to be reminded of that message because we're prone to disbelieve it. That's why Paul says his objective, what he's received from Jesus, what he's received from his Lord, is he's received grace and apostleship. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul's objective is that you would be convinced. Not that just Jesus was a good man, but that he was God himself, a descendant from David, God who came and visited us, who fulfilled God's promises. The gospel is all about Jesus. It's not about what we have done, which was what makes it such good news. Because if it was about us, it'd be a tragedy. But because it's about Jesus, it's actually a good announcement that God has done what we couldn't do. So Paul's laid the groundwork. He's shown that he can be trusted as an apostle. His message can be trusted, that it's rooted in Scripture. It's verified in Jesus' resurrection. And lastly, Paul lays out his intentions. He says his purpose for writing to Rome, beginning in verse 8. And in verse 8, he begins to say he's been praying constantly for this Roman church. You get this sense that he's wanted to come there for some time, but he's been prohibited up until now. And then verse 11, he says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. He wants to strengthen this church. And then verses 14 and 15, he puts his kind of exclamation point on it. He says, I'm under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He's under an obligation. The word can also be translated indebted. There's two ways to be indebted to somebody, right? You give me $100, and then... I go and I spend that $100. I'm now indebted to you. i got to pay you that $100 back, right? There's another way to be indebted, though. Say you give me $100, and I'm supposed to give it to somebody else. Then I'm indebted to that other person to pass on that money that you gave to me to that other person. That's how Paul's indebted here. He's obliged He's actually called, in other parts of the Bible, the apostle to the Gentiles. That's why he says, I'm under obligations to the Greeks, to barbarians, to wise, to foolish. I owe this gospel to people. Paul is eager to preach this gospel in Rome because people need this announcement. And he shows they have to believe in this announcement. And he says that in verse 16. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This gospel message has the power to save and rescue people in a way that nothing else can. One early church writer said, the gospel is like a pepper. On the outside, it looks cold, but when you bite into it, you actually start to feel the sting. I love that. Because on on the outside of this, this gospel doesn't seem to be doing anything except for pointing to Jesus. After all, what do we do? But once we realize what Jesus has done in the gospel, we realize the power that's behind it. It's the power to save. After all, we all realize we need salvation from something, right? For many of us, we need rescue from depression. Some of us from illness some of us from bereavement or loneliness. But Paul says there's a need for a deeper rescue, a salvation that we need to be saved from, and it's saved from the wrath of God for our sins. Jesus one time said, whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in me is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the Son of God. So see, when a person believes in Jesus, when they have faith in Jesus, they're saved from the penalty of their sins, eternal judgment, and the wrath of God, because Jesus on the cross died for their sins. But Paul says something different here. He wants to highlight a different part of the gospel. We see it in verse 17. Paul says, for in the gospel, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He's saying the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. That's why you need to trust it. That's why you need to believe it. And this is what's known as the great exchange. See, in the gospel, when Jesus died on the cross, not only were our sins given to him, But Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' perfect life, was then credited to us. So we're not only forgiven by God, we are seen as perfectly righteous, as if every good thing that Jesus did is now given to our account. And you you can think of this like a credit card, right? You give a credit card to a teenager, which is a bad idea, by the way, You give a credit card to a teenager and they run up thousands of dollars worth of debt. Now you can forgive that debt and you can pay off the debt of $1,000, $2,000, $3,000. But what you can also do is credit their account, put a surplus in their account that they'll never be able to exhaust. That's what Paul means by the righteousness of God. The righteous life of Jesus has been credited to your account if you put faith in Jesus. So that whatever sin you commit, you know that if you trust in Jesus and place your faith and belief in him, you can never exhaust the righteous record that Jesus earned for you. You have a surplus of the righteousness of Jesus. It's the great exchange. You're not only forgiven and given a blank slate, you are righteous and perfect in God's sight. I was recently reading a book. It was a book that I pulled off my shelf because we were moving, and out of it came this list. It was a list that I wrote when I was a sophomore in college, and it had things that I want to accomplish before I'm 30. And on that list were a lot of failures. One of them was I wanted to meet a standing president, One was that I wanted to visit 10 different countries. One was that I wanted to finish an Ironman, all of which I failed. But it got me really excited, so I went and started looking at some clips on YouTube of an Ironman. And there's this story that I saw. It was an Ironman in 2014. Uh, The story of Peter and Steen Montrop. Now, if you don't know what the Ironman is, it's a 2.4-mile swim, a 112-mile bike ride and a 26.2-mile run, all taking place in Hawaii in the blazing heat and humidity. And this is the story of Peter and Steen, mantra. The funny thing about this story, though, is these two men that were running this race, one of them, Peter, has cerebral palsy. And Peter was being pulled by his brother Steen on this raft as he's swimming 2.4 miles across this ocean. And then after they're out of the raft, Steen picks up his brother Peter and he puts him into this custom-made bike where he rides 112 miles with his brother. And then he puts him into a, a, a push uh, a push cart where he runs with him for 26.2 miles. And you see them as they cross the finish line, that they go to the podium where everybody receives their Iron Man medal and steen his brother standing there grabs the medal turns to his brother peter and puts it on peter steen had done all the work but he gives all the glory to his brother peter that's what god has done in the gospel through his son descended from david is he's done all the work on our behalf dying the death that we deserve, living the life we could never live. And he calls us righteous and blameless. I want to close with a quote. We never grasp the gospel until we understand that it's not fundamentally a message about our lives, dreams, or hopes. The gospel speaks about and transforms all those things, but only because it isn't about us. It's a declaration about God's son, Jesus, who became man, and made us righteous. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us your son, Jesus, and that you have given us a trustworthy source of knowing that message about your son, Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would work in us faith, the faith that makes us righteous, a saving faith, that saves us from your wrath and gives us a righteousness that we did not earn. And I pray, Father, that as we continue to follow your son, Jesus, that you would help us, remind us that this gospel message is from faith and for faith, from faith from beginning to end, that there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves righteous in your sight. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Would you apply that message to our minds and our hearts and give us the faith to believe it more and more each passing day? We pray this in the name of your son, by the power of your spirit, amen.